0: I really mean it when I say that I love to come and be with God's people. It's unlike any other gathering that we can experience. We, we are the people of God. And, and I hope that identity just grabs you, especially when you come, think about coming together. Because we are the people of God who have been called out from the world. Chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, being transformed by the Spirit... And journeying together to that great day when the reign of Christ will fill the earth, we are the people of God. We have been enjoying the last couple of weeks a series entitled uh, "Living Under the Reign of Grace," and we're unpacking some of the great, a few of the great texts that deal with uh, this this rule of grace over our lives. And I found it encouraging. And challenging to my belief structure, I hope you have as well. We're going to continue in that theme uh, this morning, and we'll uh, be doing that, Lord willing, the next couple of weeks as well. So I hope you'll continue to to come and be encouraged and challenged by the Word, and that if you've missed a couple of the sermons and you want to go back, I believe they're available online through the IEC website, and uh, you're most welcome to kind of come back up to speed with this uh, wonderful section out of one of Paul's letters, uh, a letter to the Romans. Um, let's pray. Father, we are delighted to be here, and as, has, as we've already acknowledged You are a great God and You have showered Your grace upon us. And so this morning I ask now that as we continue our worship by, by hearing the Word, Would you enable us to worship well by submitting to it? Give us ears to hear and hearts that are soft, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I can hardly imagine what it would be like to be a slave. I mean, imagine what it would be like to be born into a house of slavery, where perhaps the first sight of your parents included chains around their feet. Imagine what it would be like to start growing up and and begin to realize that your entire life was dictated by a master, someone who didn't really care about your welfare. Imagine what it would be like to to come to the realization that that you had no real rewards or benefits, but rewards and and even punishments were all determined on on the basis of the mood of that master. Imagine what it would be like to hope every single day that you could get away from this And then imagine what it would be like to slowly recognize there's really no hope. But you're caught, trapped, a victim of circumstances you cannot change. I was born a free man, I can hardly imagine such a situation. So it strikes us as rather shocking when the Bible describes our birth into a relation with a master called sin, and describes our situation as one of slavery. That we are trapped, that we are, we are held in bondage, and that Every minute of every waking day, we are likely to be struck with some sense of, I wish I could escape this. And then perhaps slowly recognizing there really is no escape from this tyrannical master who rules over me. Perhaps for you, the the sense of being under the control of sin comes from a a, a, a habit of sin, a, a habitual sin that, that just won't go away. Perhaps, perhaps for, for you, it, it might be the, the eyes that are drawn to pornography. A, and, and you try so hard to close your eyes to stop that habit, but it, it keeps pulling you in and stirring the sinful lusts inside, and we recognize we are enslaved to sin. Some of us are addicted to alcohol and it controls us, or, or perhaps in your case it's, it's lying. We can't stop telling ourselves lie and then living out a lie and, and covering up our life with lies. Or well, for some of us, it's, it's simply an unquenchable thirst for status and power and wealth, and, and we've tried to get rid of that. We wish it didn't control us, but you wake up the next morning and there it is again, We want more, more comfort and more status and more power and more wealth. Tried to escape, but you can't. Uh, For some of us, perhaps it's not a sinful habit, but kind of a a condition of a sinful situation that we can't escape. Maybe it's a, a family whose patterns of living are so sinful. There's domestic violence instead of love. There's cruelty instead of respect. And the whole situation just makes you say, I want to escape this mastery of sin in my life. And of course, there are no literal chains on us. And the feelings are real, but the way the Bible describes our situation is that it's not more than just a feeling, this is a reality. That we find ourselves in a situation where if if something doesn't change, we will go through life under the mastery of a of a tyrant. The Bible calls it sin. It will rule our lives. How do we escape this mastery of sin? What what needs to happen? What will will help us find a, a pathway to freedom from this tyranny? Now, listen to my question carefully because I'm not asking, how do we stop sinning? Right? That's a different question. I'm not asking, how can you get rid of all these little sins that might be popping up in your life from time to time? I'm asking about our relationship to an authority that seems to govern life, the mastery of sin itself. We're going we're to answer that question with, with a three steps that actually the Word of God gives to us, three, three things that happen or need to happen for us to really escape fully from this mastery of sin in our lives. And there's a, there's, some, there's a truth that we must know. That's where it all starts. It starts with knowing something, and then, and then there's an orientation of our life that must take place. And then thirdly, there's going to be this third step of, of a dedication of ourselves. And, and if we'll really embrace these three steps, if we'll seriously consider them, then indeed there is an opportunity to escape from the mastery of sin. We're breaking into one of Paul's letters, and if you've been with us, you know that we've been talking about Romans 5 the last couple of weeks, and, and as I said earlier, we've, we've discovered that the reign of grace in our lives is fantastic, right? I mean, the reign of grace, it gives us peace. It gives us a grace for and standing with access to God. It, 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 Paul even says grace reigns. And then he makes this most amazing statement at the end of chapter five when he says, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. It overwhelms sin. And we might think, well, then maybe we should just kind of stay in sin. If sin masters us, and that's where grace is evident, that's where grace is demonstrated, maybe maybe it's okay to be under the reign of sin for now, because grace will keep showing up. And maybe it even makes grace look better. God can just keep delivering us, right? To which Paul says, no way. That will never work. Let me show you how to escape the mastery of sin so that you can live fully in the freedom of that grace provides, and so he provides three steps for the Romans, and those three steps are helpful for us. We're in Romans chapter six, so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me, and we want to look at this first step. But first, look at. Let me show you the question that I've already told you about. Romans chapter six, verse one. This is a connection that comes out with after Paul's wonderful statement about how good grace is, and he says, "What shall we say then?" Shall we, and the NIV has this translation, go on sinning so that grace may increase. There's actually, a, 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 I think, a more precise translation. If you take it directly from the Greek text, it actually says, shall we continue under sin? It doesn't, he's not really talking about keeping on sinning and committing sins. He's talking about, do we stay under the authority of this master sin? I mean, that will make grace look better, right? And then he says, "By no means, may it never be no way Jose we are and then he begins to explain why, and he, and he, he starts by giving this truth that god 's people must know, and the first truth is this: that we have been identified with Christ. in fact, I have to warn you, when Paul gives a truth, he kind of sometimes he uh, he can't stop with one. He kind of keeps going, right? So he has a trifold truth here. If I had a piece of paper and I unfolded it once, and you got part of it, and unfolded a little more, you get a second part. Unfolded the third fold, you'd get the full picture. Well, that's what Paul does here. He he kind of unfolds this truth before you get the full picture. So the first fold in his trifold truth is this: that believers are united with Christ, or believers are identified with Christ. And this is what we must know. Know this. That's where it all starts. So, we're in chapter 6. Let's look at what Paul says in verses 2 through 5. He says, by no means, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may have a new life. For we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Now, that's kind of confusing. Let's see if we can grab hold of it and understand it. What Paul is saying, first of all, is know that we have been identified with Christ. And he, he uses two primary words here to communicate that idea, the word baptism and the word united. Okay, so go back to the text, and you'll see it there in verses 3 and 4, where Paul clearly says we have been baptized into Christ Jesus. W- weren't we baptized into His death? Verse 4, through, with Him through baptism into death. Paul is using the word baptism here not primarily to talk about What happens when we baptize people. You're not talking about being immersed in water. He's using it as a picture, a picture for all of salvation. So, he's he's wrapping together conversion and faith and regeneration and all these wonderful things that happen when a person comes to Christ. And he's going to call it baptism to refer to that whole package because it's that moment that something very important happens. They might ask, why this word? Why use the word baptism when he could have used something else? Like the word united, that's what he uses later. I think there's a very important reason. The word baptize, as you know, literally means to immerse, right? And it's used in some contexts of a person who would take a cloth, like a white cloth, and immerse it Dip it into a red dye. And you know what happens when you take a white cloth and you immerse it in a red dye? When you come up, it's red. In other words, its identity has changed. It no longer looks like a white cloth, it looks like a red cloth. It's been moved from the white cloth family to the red cloth family. Very smart. That's what the word baptized literally means. And so baptism became associated with the idea of an identity. How do I identify? Do I identify as a white cloth or do I identify as a red cloth? As a result, many groups used baptism as a way of publicly signifying, I'm not with these people, I'm with these people. And baptism would show I have changed my identity. Huh. So Paul says, Don't don't you know that you were baptized into him? You were identified with Jesus, you took on a new connection with him at this point of conversion. In fact, I'm quite certain that this is the idea here because, because Paul is going to clarify in the next verse using the word united. He uses it twice in verse 5. Did you see it? You're united with Christ. For we have been united with Him in a death like His. We'll certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Now, even that word we have to work on a little bit. When you and I talk about being united with people, it's not like this, Right? So if I say to you, um, you know, we're really we're we're really united in our opinion about dorowat. We have a unified view of dorowat. Now, if you don't like my view of dorowat, you're not united with me. But if you're smart, you like dorowat. It has it's great tasting and it's good for you, and it always signifies happiness and joy. We could be united in an opinion about a food. We could be united in a membership to a club. Maybe even united as members in a local church. That's not the idea here. To be united to Christ is somehow to be incorporated in a close relationship with Him. It is a a unity that is hard for us to even imagine Essentially, Paul is saying, you've been superglued to Jesus, stuck together in a way that changes everything. That is the emphasis of this whole section. You've been baptized. You've been united. And then notice in verse 4 and verse 5, it's with him, with him. In verse 6, it's verse with him, with him. In verse 8, again, it's with him. The Bible in this whole section is, is emphasizing this idea that it's us and him stuck together. We must know this. It becomes deeply important if we're going to enjoy an escape from the mastery of sin. Uh, One last note before we leave this idea. How did this all happen? There's a hint. You were baptized, that's passive. You were united, that's passive. Paul makes his statements to help us recognize this is not something we do. We don't wake up one day and go, hey, I want to identify with Jesus. You were identified with him by his gracious work. This is the essence of grace, that God initiates taking us into a relationship with himself through binding us with the Lord Jesus. Clear? Clear? You have been baptized and united with Him. That's the first step beginning in the truth that we must know. It's the first of our trifold truth. There's a second fold as we unwrap what Paul's going to say. It's that we have been united with Christ, identified with Christ in His death and resurrection. You probably saw it because he said it about four times. We've been united with Him, not just in general, but remarkably, in His death and resurrection. Back at the text, you'll notice it in into His death in verse 3 and verse 4 and verse 5, where He says, um, uh, if you were baptized into Christ Jesus, you're baptized into His death. That sounds like a terrible thing. Who wants to be baptized into death? Uh, verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. Verse 5, we've been united with him in a death like his. Death, death, death. You've been somehow connected to him in death. And here's the heart of Christianity. And by that I mean that believers are not just connected to Christ in a general sense. Uh, we're not just connected to him like um, this kind of casual relationship. He'll be my rabbi, my teacher, so I'm connected. Not, well, that's true, but that's not the point. I, I really want him as my example because he was so loving and compassionate. Well, well, that might be true, but that's not the heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity is this. It's the work of the cross in the death of Jesus that we are bound to, that we are united with, baptized into. We'll come back in a moment and explain why, but, but that is what Paul emphasizes. Hmm. That brings us to the third Tri, or the, uh, 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 sorry, I should also mention, of course, that it's resurrection here as well. It's not just death, but it's a death that's going to lead to resurrection there in verses 4 and 5. This is the focal point of Christianity. Now we come to this third fold, the third part of the truth that's going to put it all together for us, and is this. Know that believers have been identified with Christ in His death and resurrection, To be irreversibly freed from the enslavement to sin and made alive to God. That's a mouthful. Let me say it again. To be irreversibly set free from the enslavement of sin and made alive for service to God. That's what happens when we're bound, united, baptized to the death and resurrection of Christ. Let's see it here in the text. Uh, it It is very evident in verses 6 through 10. So, follow along as I read verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Him. For do we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. The death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. What these verses tell us is that those who are united to the death and resurrection of Christ, or I should say to Christ in His death and resurrection, experience freedom from the enslavement of master sin and a resurrected life that positions them to serve God. And the way Paul describes this is really quite f- important for us. Notice in verses six, 6 and 7, he talks about the old man. Now, My kids like to call me the old man. That's not what Paul is talking about here. In in the Scripture, the old man is often connected with who we were in Adam. You remember last week we talked about Adam was our representative. Adam was the one who brought sin and death into the world. And Paul is here saying that who we were in Adam, that would mean before we met Christ, that person has... Died. right? You see it there in verse 6 where he says, our old self was crucified with Christ, and here's the result, so that this body that was ruled by sin might be done away with. This is fantastic because often what we hear people think about is, oh, Jesus defeated sin. Well, that might be true, but that's not the point of this text, What Jesus did is he brought his people into him so that with their death, our death, with him, it's like, why would you respond to a master? You're dead. The impact of Jesus' death is not on sin. It's on his people. Because dead people don't go, yes, master, I'll serve you. It's a great way to end slavery. Just have the slaves die. Well maybe that's a, not a great way for us, but clearly what, what God what Paul is saying here is that you have been incorporated into his death in such a way that the, the, the commands of sin, the dictates of sin, the pull of sin, it's like speaking to a dead person it has no effect at all. So Paul is saying the result is freedom from sin, dead to sin now. Some of you may be thinking about a text back in Ephesians where Paul says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's a different idea, right? To be dead in our trespasses and sins means we are dead and we have no ability to respond to get ourselves out of it. This is not dead in sin. This is dead to sin. In other words, unresponsive to the call of sin because we've been united to death United to Christ in his death. It's great news. Great news. But union with Christ's death is put there to catapult us to the next idea, which is union with Christ's resurrection. We don't stay dead people, we're raised to life to be in service to God. In other words, Paul is saying, You had this old master sin, but you died with Christ. But it didn't stop there. Christ was raised to a new life in service to God, and you get that life too. Raised to serve a new master. It, it's, it's amazing. The original contention is in verse 4, where you already kind of said this, he gives a preview of his idea in verse 4 where he says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may, what's, how's the verse end? We may live a new life. New life? What kind of new life is that? It's a life not enslaved to sin, but a life that's lived to God. And and then he he says a a similar kind of thing, or he explains it there in verse 8. If we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Him. You don't stay dead. (laughs) Because when we're united with Christ, we share in His death and in His resurrection. One last note on this truth we must know. It is irreversible. It is permanent. It doesn't get undone. Notice what he says in verses nine and ten. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. Bakka, it's over. Trust. But the life he lives, it keeps going. He lives to God. Living Christ does not go back and die again, nor do his people. This is an irreversible situation. We're discussing how to escape the mastery of sin, and Paul says it all begins with this idea, this truth, this reality that That you and I must know. Know this you've been united with Christ in his death and resurrection to free us from enslavement to sin and initiate this life toward God. Simple enough. But the challenge is waking up every morning and saying, This is my reality. I really know this. It's important to us because I find that for many well-intentioned people, their idea of fighting sin is kind of personal reform. I'm going to beat this pornography thing. I'm gonna follow these steps. I'm gonna read this book. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna overcome this, this problem with anger that I have. And I I'm going to do it by putting these constraints in place, and I'm going to tell myself certain things, and I'm going to memorize scripture. I might even pray more and fast more. But my friends, all those things might be good in their place. But everything begins here. This is where we start. Know this, you've been united with Christ in His death and resurrection, which frees you from enslavement, from sin, and initiates your life to God. If we don't begin there, then we're trying to reform our life with our own efforts. And it will not work. I can take you to a Christian bookstore and show you book after book, filled with good ideas, But they don't start here. I find it amazing that before Paul gives us anything to do, and he's going to give us things to do, the commands are coming, but before all that he says, know this, you've been united with Christ in His death and resurrection, set free from the enslavement of sin to live to God. knowledge is good. In fact, theologians tell us that knowledge is essential for faith. You can't, you can't go any further in your faith if your knowledge is short or insufficient. But knowledge alone doesn't do everything for us. There also needs to be a couple of more steps. And this, this second step that Paul is going to set before us, it comes in one verse. It's an assessment that we need to make, and it has to do with the orientation of our lives. And he says, if you want to escape sin, then assess your life as dead to sin and alive to God. It has to somehow move from knowledge to an orientation of our lives that says, I'm really going to position my life in view of this reality. Notice how he says it there in verse 10, verse 11. He says, in the same way, count yourselves, you see it, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I love this word, count yourselves. It's It's an accounting term. It means, uh, assess the books, right? Where are your debits and where are your credits? How, how does it all measure up on the balance sheet? That's what the way that word is used elsewhere in, in, the, in the Greek world. And, the, and and how how interesting to think that when Paul says if you account yourself properly, it'll be this, that you're dead to sin and alive to God because you have been united with Christ. This is taking the objective reality out there and personalizing it. It says it really is going to be my identity. Now, let me, let me clarify once more. Paul is not talking about sinless perfection. Do not walk out of here and say, oh, the Bible tells us that if I just think, about, think rightly that I can be sinless. That's not what he's saying because we still have some other challenges to our walk with the Lord that are still with us. But he is saying that we can consider ourselves set free from the mastery of sin. It is a reorientation of life. This is difficult. This is difficult. Because we are, we are people who kind of see reality with our eyes, right? So, if you're caught up in lying if you're caught up in pursuing sexual pleasures, if if your life is consumed with angry outbursts and trying to stop them, if you're you're trying to anesthetize yourself in the pain of life with drugs and alcohol and painkillers, that's our reality. And Paul says, no, reorient your life to this reality. You've been set free from the enslavement of sin. I find this whole challenge of, of making this my identity to be quite, quite difficult because I like to think of myself as a professor, or you might think of yourself as an engineer, or a nurse, or a dad, or a mom, or an aspiring student. Or fill in the blank. We all have identities that may not be bad, but they compete with this, And so we think of ourselves first and foremost by the roles that we play and the positions we occupy. I might think of myself as an Ethiopian or as an American or as an Amhera or Oromo or Tigray. All these kinds of competing identities can possess us. It may be true. But here's our central identity. I'm united with Christ, set free from sin, and every day I have to reorient my view of reality around this idea. Paul says, consider yourselves in this way. There's a third step, and it is this. We have a dedication to maintain. Paul is going to tell us to dedicate your whole self as a tool for God's service, not sin. Now, the order here is important. Knowing that you have been united with Christ in His death and resurrection and set free from the enslavement of sin, and having oriented your life around this truth, now we can talk about doing a dedication that says, I am... In your service, all of me, I no longer am in the service of sin. Look how he says it in verses 11 or 12 through 14. He says, do not, therefore, let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God As those who have been brought forth from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under law. That was a former era, but now you're under the era of grace. Dedicate your whole self as a tool for God. He begins with this statement, Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. You are freed from sin. Don't don't offer your body to be under the mastery of sin. That body is mortal. The body is going to die. But that doesn't mean we have to live under that controlling force. How how easy it is to walk through life and say I'm just a victim. I'm a victim of sin this controlling force around me and in me. I'm in this body that's destined to die. I'll just give up. And Paul says, no, no, no. We don't offer ourselves to the reign of sin in fact, he says it another way don't present your body for use by sin, but present yourself to God. It, this is a call for believers with using these three commands to dedicate ourselves wholly, completely to God. What a challenge. Young people, many of you are cultivating your minds. I find it so exciting to think how how our minds can be developed. Your minds can be developed in a way that will help you selfishly pursue the comforts of life, status. Your mind could be filled with pornography or television or YouTube videos. That's a mind presented for sin. Or you could choose to dedicate your mind to God as a tool for righteousness. What what God could do with you. Your mind will be filled with Scripture. Your mind is used to plan benefits for others and for God's service. Your mind is used to challenge false philosophies and false teaching. Cultivate a mind that's dedicated to God. You men who work with your hands, you can work with your hands in service to sin, where your hands are directed primarily to building a big house for yourself, or or perhaps to fight and steal for your own defense, or, or to stuff more food into our mouths. Paul says, no, don't dedicate your hands to service of a master of sin. Dedicate your hands to God. Hands that would be used for uh, helping people, perhaps helping to repair a house for a neighbor, or using your hands to carry food to someone else, Or, or using your hands to make money that can be used for God's service, perhaps in sending a missionary to another part of the world. Some of you have tongues that have been dedicated to sinful purposes speaking lies and outbursts of anger, Paul says, no, no, dedicate your tongue to the praise of God and the proclamation of His Word. All of us, head to toe, dedicated not to sin, but to serve God. And the result, we find ourselves not living under the mastery of sin, but living as instruments to God. I do find it hard to imagine what it would be like to be a slave born into a place where my parents are in chains and there would seem to be no escape. But when I think about that, I also think about what it would be like to experience release from slavery. To have someone come and drop the chains off and say, that, that terrible master you are serving, you don't have to serve anymore. Run! I can imagine that slave with a smile on his face running and looking for a new home, a new place to live, a new place to serve, away from the tyrant that controlled life. That's what Christ has done for us. We know this truth, that we've been united with Him in His death, in His resurrection. We know that we have been set free from the mastery of sin, and now He says to us, run! Run with a new orientation, not to turn back, but with a dedication To a new master. Oh, may God's people experience this freedom through grace. Let's pray. So, our Father, we confess to You that in our foolishness, though we have been set free from sin, we, we tend to turn back and live there. Would you open our eyes to this reality that we have been identified with Christ? Drive that truth deeply into us, I pray, and for those of us this morning who are so aware that we've been living as victims, Lord, would you break through in our lives, do a great work of grace. And give us the courage, the boldness, the discipline to run from the master-slave. Because that's our identity. For Jesus' sake, I ask. Amen.